0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I am Stephanie Bree, and I'm here with licensed psychologist, Dr. Amy. Hello.
1: Hi. Thanks for having me again.
0: Thanks for being on the show. So today we're talking about depression and suicide, and what triggered this was the news that Jason David Frank may have taken his life, and so Mm -hmm. I've been talking about a lot of about that with people, so I thought it would be good to talk to somebody who deals with that.
1: Sure, absolutely.
0: So, yeah, what can you tell me about uh, depression and suicide? Like, what is like how how does how does somebody get to that point?
1: Sure. So, um, I mean, a lot of different mental health issues can uh, contribute to suicidal thoughts or or behavior. Um, Depression is one you hear about a lot because those feelings of hopelessness and that just really low mood place can often uh, link to that wanting to not be alive anymore. Um, Basically, suicide is is a behavior, but it's associated with that mental health issue of Feeling like there is no other option, or things aren't going to get better, can't get better, um, that your brain is essentially telling you this is the this is the only option right now, or this is the only solution, um, and uh, in in that place of of not really seeing any alternatives.
0: What are some warning signs that you can look out for if you have a friend who might be thinking about taking their life?
1: Sure. So um, if someone has that history of depression, um, first of all, one thing that they teach us in graduate school is if you're worried about someone, um, asking them about it is not uh, is, is not going to give them the idea. Um, there's kind of that worry is if someone's not having suicidal thoughts and I ask them if they're feeling suicidal, is that going to make them think, oh, hey, maybe... It doesn't. It doesn't cause that. But what it can do is, it can be hard to bring up that topic. So asking someone who has those thoughts and isn't sure how to ask for help that can open the door to them having that discussion. Um, sometimes, you know, when someone is talking about it, uh, you know, I, I hate the term attention seeking um, because they'll say, "Oh, they're they're saying that." Attention. Well, yeah, they're seeking attention because they need your support and your help right now. Um, So I I hate that that's got a negative connotation there. But if someone is asking for help, you know, being able to to give them something other than oh why would you why would you be so attention seeking like hey thank you for sharing that with me you know let's get some support that can be helpful for you. Um, Sometimes if someone has depression, um, one of the symptoms of depression can be just this extreme exhaustion and fatigue. So sometimes if someone is in that really depressed state, uh, there can be risk as they're coming out of it because if they're experiencing suicidal thoughts but just have zero energy, um, if they're not getting support for those suicidal thoughts and they get the energy back, sometimes that translates to having the energy to act on the thoughts that were already there. Um, and that's actually linked to why um, I know we're in December right now, uh, but the number one month for suicide in, in, in America um, is March uh, when we start getting more daylight and people who are experiencing that seasonal depression um get kind of that that burst of energy so uh making sure that someone has that support as they're coming out of that depressive episode is important um in case you know making sure that when they get their energy back towards um helping them continue their recovery
0: okay What are some things you can do if you have a friend who is talking about suicide?
1: Yeah, um, so you need to let them know that you're there for them and that you support them. Um, Of course, there are, unfortunately, huge systems issues with access to mental health, um, and it really stinks that it kind of falls on, like, be there for your friends instead of here are the reliable resources, um, but helping them get connected to your crisis line if they're in crisis or figuring out what resources are available to them in your area. Um, my my understanding is that that 988 number is now national in the United States uh, to be able to call for mental health help and get mental health professional resources versus law enforcement um, since law enforcement is not therapists, <laughs> law enforcement is not uh, mental health professionals. Um, being able to connect them to a resource that's actually there to help them. Um, and another thing we see with depression is that self isolation. So just letting them know, even if you're isolating yourself right now, even if you're pulling back, I'm still your friend. I'm for you. Um, and if and when you're you know you're not connecting with me right now but when you are ready for that i'm you know i'm here for you then okay how helpful is the hotline i'm sorry how helpful is what the hotline um unfortunately it varies i don't know a whole lot about 988 specifically because it is so new um but i know that like the national hotline um uh, some people have experiences with that. My understanding is they are trying to get better about the training um, and uh, making sure that people uh, have a better experience when they are calling it. Uh, the, the goal in that moment is essentially to get someone through the immediate crisis that has them calling um, as well as setting them up for reaching out to more long-term kind of support. Um, I believe it has improved, but I know you know people talk about experiences with crisis hotlines of of you know um getting disconnected or like not feeling like the person knew the best way to handle um but but my understanding is they have gotten better about the training there so i hope that's true um if anyone has more information on that um absolutely let me know i want to make sure i'm sharing the best possible resources okay as a mental health professional, how do you respond
0: to someone who tells you that yes they are having suicidal thoughts?
1: Sure. So, um a part of my job and, you know, the mandated reporting the duty to protect, uh which varies a bit by state. Um I'm licensed in a few but uh basically if someone is in immediate danger to themselves or someone else, Um, I do have an ethical responsibility to make sure that they are physically safe and remain physically safe. Um, So that can mean referral for hospitalization. Um, However, not everyone who's experiencing suicidal thoughts is a danger to themselves. Um, A lot of people experience what we call passive suicidal ideation. Um, People feel like um, I wish I wasn't here anymore. Uh, the world would be better if I wasn't in it. Um, thoughts like that, but don't necessarily have a plan to act on those thoughts. Um, and in that moment, my job is to first of all assess for their 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 risk and to ensure that they're physically safe. Um, if they if they are safe and not needing hospitalization would be to treat. The depressive symptoms and to address those thoughts, help them to to alleviate the thoughts that they are having. Um, I think that it is completely understandable to be concerned about that when talking to a therapist because we do have that um, protective duty in our jobs. And um, I will say, a lot of around suicide seems to focus less on um, what's the what does the client need in this moment and more on um don't get sued which i mean yeah i don't want to, i don't want to have a lawsuit but it ends up emphasizing like when in doubt send them to the hospital um so it's okay to ask, you know what is your threshold for realizing what specific you know where do you stand on that Um, my concern is the hospital is a tool and it's you know like any tool it can be very valuable and very useful for the right job but for the wrong job can not be very useful um, can or can even be harmful. so it's figuring out what does this person need right now? Um, I will also say in my practice, I primarily work with children and teens. Um, and you know, if someone has a legal guardian who's, who's aware that they're having these thoughts and has a safety plan in the home, um, some, sometimes you don't necessarily need to be inpatient if there can be a safety plan in the home. And if you have a guardian who is supportive and is on board and helping with that, um, sometimes you're less likely to need um, say, that, that, that higher level of care.
0: Let's suppose somebody takes their life and you have a,
1: uh-huh.
0: a friend of the person. What do you tell uh-huh. them after their friend took
1: their life? That's, that's hard because suicide is one of those things that we talk about it and act about it like it's something that if you do everything right, you can prevent it 100%. Um, but it's it's a symptom of a disease, that, you know, the disease being depression uh, or another mental health diagnosis. Um, and, you know, we would never tell an oncologist, hey, you know, if you're really good at your job, you will never have a patient die from their cancer. You will cure it 100% of the time. Um, and unfortunately, that just is not... Um, especially with the lack of resources, um, that's not always going to be the case. So letting people know that you can, unfortunately, you can do everything quote unquote right and still lose someone that way. Um, and it, and that really sucks. And honestly, as a mental health provider, it's terrifying to me, but that we, we do the best we can for someone um, and we just know that that we try our hardest and to um, honor their memory and to grieve and to mourn that and then also be able to let of that what could I have you know what more could I have done because that will just absolutely swallow you completely
0: if you do lose a client how do you typically handle that
1: um so uh knock on wood please. Uh I have not the client to suicide at this point. Um, I mean, I've had people go to the hospital, I've had uh, clients who, who have had you know the the behaviors but have survived them. Um, statistically speaking though, in my line of work, if, if you're doing it long enough, eventually it's going to happen. Uh, a lot of it is, you know, we do care about our clients very deeply. I know it's, you know, I know I'm compensated, uh, and there's kind of that. Well, you're you're a therapist. You you know you're a psychologist. You only care because they're paying you. Well, no, I've actually uh, worked very hard to get it set up that I I can be paid to act on how much I care about these people, um, so that I can put all of my energy to that, and I don't have to say, okay, you know, I have to stop talking to you now because I have to go to the job that pays my bills. Um, We we do care deeply. We do grieve for our clients when that kind of thing happens. Um, We uh, we know um, that the the confidentiality of medical records is considered ongoing even after death. So um, without unless there's appropriate releases or or, you know laws in place to allow that um, the the records still remain remain. Uh, or sorry, um, protected. Um, but we do as, as a profession, um, we're required and, and I mean, I think it's very good that we're required uh, to seek supervision and consultation when things come up that interfere um, with our ability to do our job. So, you know, consulting with other professionals, processing what happened. Uh, we are also encouraged to seek our own therapy when we need to. And you know, part of that, you know, when losing a client would involve grieving that client, which could involve getting your own, um, getting your own support from your own therapist as you're walking through that.
0: Is there a risk when a notable person like a celebrity takes their life? Is there a risk for somebody who is on the fence that could trigger them and they get confident?
1: Um suicide is a very triggering topic and uh there is the possibility that someone who is already struggling could be triggered by that news um and uh, i some of that is that the media is not good about reporting on mental health at all um i i think i've i think i've uh, ranted about the media's portrayal of of mental health issues um, on this podcast before. Uh, But there is the risk, especially because, you know, there's a reason that there's been more of a movement, uh, for example, on social media sites, to use content warnings and to use trigger warnings when discussing issues like suicide. Because if someone is in that place, is having those symptoms, having those thoughts, and they, um, they see something that's triggering without being, you know, with, without their consent and without being prepared to hear about it, it can absolutely trigger someone who is already maybe experiencing some of those thoughts. Um, and unfortunately, you know, we live in the age of uh, the clickbait titles and the, you know, what gets people to go on your website, so they're, they're not going to say, you know, content warning about this article, they're they're going to say, hey, you know, guess who killed themselves? And it's like that's not that's not helpful to anyone. Um, it's just designed to drive traffic.
0: When it comes to confidentiality, does that are there rules in place for when a notable person or a celebrity takes their life?
1: Um I mean confidentiality and HIPAA specifically apply to medical professionals. So for example, if, if I, and you know, I'm not, I'm not saying I ever had or haven't, but if I had a client who was a celebrity, they would be my client and they would be subject to that confidentiality like all of my other clients. Um, but news outlets are not protected health providers. So if someone tells, a news outlet, hey, guess what happened? They are not bound by that confidentiality. Um, so we actually, uh, I'm, I'm in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, um, and a number of years ago, uh, another psychologist in my area um, had a suicide attempt, and the um, the somehow the local paper got their hands on the note that she had written, um, and they just published it. And I was furious. I said, why on earth would you publish that? Like, imagine how triggering that was. Or imagine how that would be for for her clients to see that just in the paper. You know, you sit down to drink your morning coffee and you open up your paper and and here's your therapist's suicide note. Um, But unfortunately that, well, I would argue that that was a very unethical choice on their part as journalists. Um, it was not technically illegal. They can just do that. Yeah. Well, um, what
0: about you have someone who tells you that they they have plans? Like, mm-hmm. they've, they've set aside, they, they've, they've marked the date on the calendar, they're done. How do you respond to that?
1: Sure so that would fall under someone who who would be considered a danger to themselves if they have, you know, we talk about plan means and intent so plan is I know how I'm going to do it means is I have access to the the thing you know the method and intent is I'm going to act on this plan uh, so that would fall under that mandated reporting Um, Or that I'm sorry duty to protect Um, so that could mean Hospitalization Um, that could mean calling a crisis team or an ambulance if if they're not if they're saying here's what I'm going to do Here's my plan. It's going to happen Um, No, I won't go to the hospital That could mean me calling the hospital and saying hey you have to go get them um, Because they are in danger. They are a danger to themselves Um, every client that I see has to provide an emergency contact person uh, a a harm to self could potentially be me reaching out to that emergency contact person because that would be considered an emergency Um, if someone shares that they are putting together this kind of plan but they're willing to discuss a safety plan potentially it would be very it would be case by case it would really depend on what I learn when I do, it's called a risk assessment where we just ask questions to determine uh, someone's level of risk for uh, being a danger to themselves. Uh, But if they are able to commit to a safety plan, um, you know, and we have a follow-up in place, like if they say, I'm not gonna do it for two weeks, um, potentially we could have a plan in place that we're in contact maybe even on a daily basis um, but if there, if I do have that concern that it's not essentially if it's not safe for me to send you home um, that would kind of, that would be that threshold for okay we need to we need to get you somewhere where they can um, keep you safe and uh, help come up with a plan to to maintain that safety when you do eventually go home because the you know we don't we don't move into the hospital forever but it's to help get something in place so that when you leave the hospital you can safe.
0: What are the risk factors of suicide, what do they look like? I'm
1: sorry, you cut out.
0: What do the risk factors of suicide look like?
1: Sure, like uh, things that put someone at more risk for becoming suicidal? Yes. Sure, um, so it it varies, um, but if someone has that history, um, they might be, you know, that that history might tell us that they're more likely um, there is a genetic element to depression, so family history can also contribute to that. Um, I'm, I'm not a prescriber, so I can't tell people what they should or shouldn't do medication-wise, um, but like I had said before about how depression causes fatigue, sometimes if someone is in that really low, hopeless place, um, if they start antidepressants but aren't receiving therapy or other support for their mental health, um, the antidepressants can boost their energy. Uh, so that's why there's that that warning there. Uh, you know, just want to make sure that other supports are, you know, if, if medication is the right choice for you and medication is helpful for you, um, just making sure that, that it's not just, you know, they're not magic. So, just making sure that, that, that treatment is ongoing and continue to be monitored. Um, if someone is talking about suicide, talking about feeling suicidal, uh, then just, you know, that, that definitely is also a kind of a, a red flag or a risk factor that they might be having those kind of thoughts.
0: What are some kinds of medications that um, can help with those kinds of thoughts? What are some kind of medications sure. that can put them at risk?
1: Sure. So the the risk, the risk is is that um, increase of the energy and kind of the, uh, the ability to to act on things that you maybe didn't have the energy to act on before. And if the thing that I didn't have the energy to act on is, you know taking a shower or taking care of myself that's good but if the thing I didn't have the energy to act on is suicidal thoughts then that's that's where that risk comes in um a, a small amount of people do experience a side effect of intrusive thoughts on certain antidepressants um if that happens for you let the prescriber know right away um it, it doesn't mean you use that tool if that's helpful for you, but it might mean that the one that you're on isn't a good fit. Um, The tricky thing with medication is that um, the the studies will tell us, you know, what does this chemical tend to do to human brains? But each human has a unique brain. Uh, It's, you know, your brain is like a fingerprint. There's there's not... um, it's it's gonna be one of a kind. So there wasn't a you know, there for example, if if I were going on medication, there wasn't an Amy study on what Prozac does. So we would have to um, you know, play and uh, you know, try out and see how it affects me specifically. And if you are ever concerned about a side effect, absolutely let the prescriber know. Um there are there's a reason we have multiple options for each type of medication. It's just some people don't respond well to a particular one, um, so it's it's okay to let them know, hey, this particular one is not working for me, and it's it's up to you what side effects your you know you you define quality of life for yourself. Um, for example, some antidepressants can interfere with sex drive. And for some people, they don't mind not having a sex drive. And that's, that's fine. Um, and so if, if you're like, yeah, you know, this sex drive, but I'm not really interested in having a sex drive. So it's whatever. But if you're someone that that's important to you, then maybe that's right medication um so it just uh it, it depends on you know you get to decide what your um what your quality of life is and what your what what you're like you know okay this is helping me and i I don't have these depression symptoms anymore um you know it, it's kind of up to the individual there i'm sorry i forgot the question you asked me that i was supposed to be answering you answered it good <laughs> Thank you. Good,
0: okay, okay, cool. speaking of media, how should mm-hmm. how would you recommend the media report on suicide, especially if it's um, a notable person?
1: Sure, I think first of all, having those content warnings in place um, and I uh you know letting people be able to filter the content that might be triggering for them. Um, I don't necessarily think that the answer is to not cover it at all. Um, there's sometimes people will talk about like, well, we just shouldn't share that that's what happened. Um, but I think the danger there is there's already a lot of stigma and taboo around saying that that's how someone died. Um, so I, I don't think ignoring the issue altogether is a solution, um but having those content warnings in place. And also, uh, maybe, I know 24-hour news cycle, everything is out immediately and everyone wants to be the one breaking the story, but maybe wait to share that information. Um, You know, in in the incident with the psychologist that I talked about, they broke that story immediately. Some of her clients found out that their appointment was canceled when they saw her on the news. So, you know, they they could have waited two days to let her office reach out, um, you know, let the let the family, you know, let them contact the people that they want to tell directly before we break that that's why or that was the cause of death. Um, I know we I know we want everything immediately all the time, but does that part of the story have to be broken right away? I I think if they maybe waited on that. Um, that could potentially help at least that people not be completely like blindsided by that information all at once.
0: That takes me back to the story that triggers this conversation. Jason David Frank TMZ reported that he hanged himself before there was any confirmation that he had oh my God. that he was even dead. And well, then they retra- they retracted that. They left it in the headline that he died of suicide, but they 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 retracted that information. What would you tell a news outlet,
1: um, in that scenario? I would. I mean, that's that's disgusting. They wanted to be the ones who broke the story. They wanted to share it first, so they didn't even wait to find out if it was true. And why? <laughs> Why would you, you call yourself a news organization and you're reporting things that you haven't confirmed yet. That's, I, I feel like journalists should maybe have, you know, like in my line of work, I have to have a license to be a psychologist and there is a board and there is an ethical code. And if I break the ethical code, the board can tell me, You can't practice psychology anymore, you have have done your job poorly and you have hurt people as a result, you don't get to do this anymore. And when I hear stories like that, I kind of wonder if journalists should have that kind of oversight, like, hey, you irresponsibly reported something that didn't turn out to be true, you shared it in a way that was triggering and hurt people and potentially could have triggered someone. In such a way that led to them dying um you you can't be trusted to report the news like i that's just that is disgusting to me
0: so in summary, what can you say are some of the tips that you would give someone who has a friend who is um, talking about suicide.
1: Sure, I I would say you know like like I mentioned before, making it clear that you're there for them and that you care about them, um, even if they're withdrawing, even if they're down on themselves, um, and just determining what uh, what resources are in place in their area because you know there's there's a reason I'm not the therapist for my own family and friends um, that professional boundary allows me to take care of myself um you know i i hear triggering things all day so having those boundaries for myself allows me to be good at my job so um you know being there for them as their friend and then also putting them in touch with the resources that can help them on that professional level um to to address the underlying the diagnosis that is causing those symptoms
0: Earlier you mentioned that statistically it's likely if you're in this profession long enough that you'll have, you'll lose a client. Does that ever wear down on your own mental health? Are mental health professionals at risk of suicide?
1: We are. um, I I don't know the exact on it, but it happens. It happens uh, quite a bit. Um, And uh, I mean, part of that is that, some people who have their own history are drawn to the field because they want to help people who have who are going through things that they've gone through. So there's that added risk on that. end. Um, but there is also just being around it for your job is very draining. Um, it's you know, like, like I said, we go into this line of work because we truly care and want to help people. And that makes it challenging to kind of turn it off. Um, you know, when it's, when it's the weekend, uh, and I, I'm taking time for myself, it's, it's hard to say, oh, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna not think about work because when you care that much, it's hard to just not be thinking about work anymore because you do care a lot. And, uh, so there is risk there. Um, but that's why we have that responsibility to have our own support in place, to, you know, good therapists have therapists or have therapists as needed, you know, their own counseling, seek their own therapy as they need to. Um, part of that is we are humans just like our clients. We deserve support just like our clients do. Um, and, you know, part of that is I'm not, there's a, you know, around on mental health. There's this idea of like, what kind of person are you if you, if you need your own therapies? well you're you're a human struggles i'm not better than my clients just because they're coming to see me i can have my own needs um so it's one of the um uh, one, one, one thing that that gets me uh really you know that really bothers me is if if someone uses you should be in therapy like an insult like why is that insulting why would you why would you say that as a negative thing you know
0: Would having an underlying mental health condition like bipolar disorder, for example, disqualify someone from being a counselor or a therapist?
1: Um, I'd say it depends. Um, So unfortunately, like I said, there is a lot of stigma, and that includes stigma in the field. Um, Without oversharing, I'll say I have my own mental health history. Um, And when I was applying to graduate school, we have to write a personal statement explaining why we want to go into the field. Uh, my first draft of my personal statement shared part of why I want to do this work is because I want to help people who are going through things that I've gone through and survived. And my advisor told me, if you put that in your personal statement, no program will accept you. Um, so unfortunately, there is still a lot of stigma within the field, which I think is, again, very uh, rude to my clients, to be like, you know, I'm better than you because I haven't been through what you're going through. No, that's not how that works at all. Um, There is the responsibility to step back and take leave of absence if our mental health is interfering with our ability, because I do have a responsibility to my clients. They deserve quality care. If my mental health is or was ever making it so that I couldn't be good at my job, I have that responsibility to step back. Um, every mental health professional ethical code requires us to have a plan in place for our clients if we were to no longer be able to serve them. Um, there's something called a professional will, um, which it speaks to specifically, like, if, if I had an aneurysm and died right now, what would happen to the people who are expecting to see me later today? Um, But it also speaks to, if I were to have a mental health issue come up that made it that I couldn't practice competently, um, who would be covering for me essentially so that I can take that time off because I have that responsibility to take that time for myself. Um, but the same thing would apply if I got a medical diagnosis that interfered with my ability to practice and I needed to take time off for that reason. Um, I mean, I have a colleague who a number of years ago took six leave, six-month leave while she was receiving treatment for cancer because the, the uh, treatment that she had had big cognitive side effects. And she knew I'm not going to be a good therapist while I'm getting this treatment. So I have a responsibility to my clients to make sure that they're seen by someone else in the meantime. Um, So that applies to, that's not just mental health, that's everything. Um, I personally believe that if someone has their own treatment and their symptoms are managed in such a way that they can still do their job well, there's no reason why someone with a diagnosis wouldn't be a fine therapist. Um, Unfortunately, there is stigma and barriers to them getting into the field, um, but that's its whole own other problem.
0: You mentioned the stigmas around mental health multiple times. What can we as a society do to reduce those stigmas?
1: Uh, A big part of it is making it more okay to talk about it and to make it more okay to get help for it. Uh, I think a lot of the stigma around being in therapy has shifted, it's shifted from no, you know, only, uh, only unstable, terrible people need therapy to, um, it's okay for other people to need therapy. And it's not to that point where like, it's okay for anyone to need therapy. And that includes me. Um, so I think continuing to shift that conversation that way, um, I think mental health professionals, um, being allowed to be open about our own experiences without the risk that it's going to hurt our career, um, is part of it. Because, I mean, that, that really reinforces the idea. Like I said, it it really reinforces this notion that I'm somehow, I have to be like, quote unquote, better than my clients by not having my own issues. And like I said, that's condescending, um. So I, I think if we let particularly those of us in the field be open about it, uh, but the more talking about it, uh, responsible reporting on mental health and suicide, uh, accurate media portrayals of diagnoses, um, get rid of the horror movie uh, trope that the, the bad guy is just crazy um, and uh, be, you know, that uh, not when we blame bad behavior on mental illness, that reinforces the idea that mental illness makes someone violent, makes someone a criminal. Um, and I mean, a lot of di- you know, particularly a lot of times that it will be something like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia and they say, Oh, you know, the bad guy had schizophrenia. That's why they were a serial killer. When statistically people with schizophrenia are more likely to be victims of violent crimes than perpetrators. So, you know, Getting the accuracy there with that would, I think, be helpful.
0: Okay. Well, I want to thank you for having this conversation. I know it's going to be hard for some people to listen to,
1: but it's worth having. Absolutely. Just, you know, constant warning so that people can be prepared if they choose to listen. Absolutely.
0: All right. Well, thank you for being on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. All right. Take care. You too.